Ahoy, ye sea dogs. Hearken to this episode of I Be Lovin' This. Ye ought as well. I be thy wiki, Indirandawa. And lo, yon co-host, Samantha Hees. How be ye, Samantha? I'm good. How are you, Indy? Uh, I be full of the vigor of Poseidon. Oh, okay. What if I did the whole episode like that? I don't know if I could stay. <laughs> <laughs> I might have to leave the recording. <laughs> That's our 1890 Sailor Talk for... Hello, and welcome to another episode of I Love This, You Should Too. My name is Indy Randall, and with me is my lovely co-host, Samantha Hees. That's me! I'm here too. How are you doing, Sam? Good. The quarantine madness hasn't hit us quite yet. No, we got it early, and now we've settled nicely. Yes, exactly. Because, uh, frankly, we have a pretty pretty easy life. We do. Yeah. We're lucky. We have very loud pink lemonade drinks today. <laughs> yeah, so you can hear. And by pink lemonade, we mean kerosene with honey in it. Yes. Today's... Beer of the week is <laughs> kerosene. <laughs> so in case you haven't uh, been able to tell, we are talking about The Lighthouse, the 2019 film, which is available on Amazon streaming services if you are into that sort of thing. And we're going to be spoiling it at all, so uh, go watch it now if you haven't seen it already. We'll wait. For like two hours? Yeah. Mm. Welcome back. Because they can just pause us. Right. Yeah. So, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. If you're not quite sure what you just watched, keep listening. We'll explain it to you. (laughs) Will we? Uh, I'm still hoping that you'll explain it to me. I guess we have to start off with the big question. Since this was my pick of a movie that I really thought that everyone should watch, Samantha, did you love this movie? No. No, I didn't think you did. (laughs) No. So I think we had to go beyond that question. What did you think of this movie? I don't know. (laughs) These are awful answers to this question. That's a fair answer I really don't even really understand what we watched. It was a movie going in that I knew was going to be like, kind of kind of weird and i probably wasn't gonna either get it or understand it or like it and uh yeah that that delivered for me <laughs> is were there moments you liked at least yeah did you hate it no no i did not hate it um i just don't think this is my style of movie why is it not your style dialogue <laughs> And color. So it was hard to understand? Yes, it was hard to understand. We started out with subtitles, but you said, no, I'm fine. I don't need Well, them. it wasn't like the actors were hard to understand. I just didn't really get what was happening in some of the scenes. Okay. That is a, a very fair point because I feel like a lot of people, I think this is a movie maybe you should watch with subtitles because... A lot of it's hard to understand. This was my second watching, and I felt there were parts where, like, oh, now I get what was being mm. said there because I'm a little more familiar with the way they speak because it's that uh, that 1890s sailor talk, right? And they both have different accents and both pretty thick too. So yeah, it is. It's hard to understand, and you just don't like black and white movies. Not really. It was a very like there are black and white movies that are like there's difference between like grays and colors and stuff this was very um sometimes hard to see 
like that orthochromatic film. Sure. Um, so I felt like I was kind of struggling to like discern what was on the screen sometimes, and I was also struggling um, to like understand the context or what actually was happening in a scene. So it it was a little confusing. This movie. Very fair, and I think I bring this movie because I want to get to the point where that's fine. Yeah. That movies don't need to say like this is what happens this is what to take away this is the type of movie where you take away what you want i guess maybe let's start off with talking about uh the pretentiousness of art cinema and the people who talk about it great i don't think this is a pretentious movie i might be very pretentious when i talk about it that's very (laughs) possible but i don't think the movie is i Definitely felt like it was for a very specific person, which made me feel like it was a little bit pretentious because it was like, oh, you wouldn't get this. Who's the the person? You. So someone who like likes to dissect movies. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's what I want to dispel by bringing this movie out, because I think these movies that we think are pretentious and many of them are. I think this is pretty free of that because I think the director talks about this movie as like, oh yeah, I was trying all these big silly things. It was a lot of fun. And that's what I kind of get from it. Hmm. And this is a movie that has like fart jokes and funny little relationship thing. So I don't think it's a movie that thinks it's better than your casual viewer. I do think it's a movie that a casual viewer may not want to go see because of because of what you're talking about Mm -hmm. because they think this isn't a movie for them and i think a lot of what this podcast is is me trying to say like all movies are for everyone all good movies are for everyone and you're all going to take something different away from that and that's fine and i just want more movies to be to be like this and i'm not saying that like i know i always rail against like how Disney's taking over everything and Marvel movies are all pretty much the same. But we need those too. It's not that one is better than the other. It's the more variety in filmmaking we have, the better it is for the art and for the audience. Hmm. And I think movies like this are really important because ambiguity is good in film because it lets people take away what they want. Like even the genre of movie. What genre is this? Black and white. (laughs) That's not a genre, but okay. (laughs) But I've heard people talk about this as a horror movie. I don't think it's a horror movie at all. No. I've heard people talk about it like it's a comedy. I don't think that's right. Maybe it's a fantasy. Maybe it's an allegory. Who knows? But when it's so ambiguous, even in its genre, it allows movies like this to to be more personal in that way. If you watch Infinity War, you and me and... Someone in China or Peru, we're all taking away pretty much the same thing. Mm -hmm. I think when you watch a movie that's ambiguous, that has a lot of symbolism, you take away what you want, and it allows movies like this to be much more personal. Right. Because it's trying to tap into something in you, Mm. and not even a specific thing in you. It's not saying, like, this is the story that you should take away. It's presenting you with a lot of things... A lot of things that I think are rooted in the human experience, and you take from it what you will. Like for me, I am I like to work out the puzzle of what I think a movie means. I like to come up with these entirely subjective theories, and that's fun for me, and that makes it personal to me. But there's no objective truth. So mm-hmm. I feel like if you go into a movie and say, like, well, I didn't get it. It's not that you didn't get it. It's like, well, what did you get from it? 
Right. And if you say like, oh, for me, it was just a movie about two people on a lighthouse getting crazy because they're, nobody picked them up. That's just as valid as if I go into this big thing about Greek mythology. Taking away what you want is kind of like the pleasurable part of, of these ambiguous movies. Whatever you say, it's just as valid as what some film critic says. Right. Okay, well, in that case, I think it did kind of just seem like two people in isolation and their descent into madness. Yeah, I, I think if we just talk about the movie, if you give a summary of it, that's what it is. Yeah. Well, we can give a little summary for those who aren't going to watch it. I think you should because most of what we say probably won't make sense if you haven't seen it. Very true. This is not one of those movies where you can like watch the trailer and know kind of what the storyline is. This is very much like it's weird. <laughs> so two lighthouse keepers arrive at a lighthouse. They're going to be there for, they assume, four weeks. There's an older keeper named Thomas, played by Willem Dafoe, a younger keeper named Ephraim, played by Robert Pattinson. Immediately, Thomas, the older, takes charge and is kind of diminishing the work of the younger, saying he's doing everything wrong. Time goes on, and there is a big storm, so they can't be picked up, and they kind of lose track of what time they were supposed to be picked up. How long have they been there? Has it been days, weeks, months, years? We have no idea. And they also start drinking a lot at this point, which only adds to the confusion. Uh, the two of them eventually come to blows, and there is the light of the lighthouse that the older is always trying to keep the younger out from. But once the younger kills the older one, he goes in there, sees something, we don't know what, falls down the stairs and dies. And that's a very basic summary of the that movie. That is a very basic summary. But that I got all of those things out of the movie. And of course, there's things along the way, like we find out that both of them have been lying about who they are. But we'll get into all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. So should we start off with a little bit of technical stuff? Because yeah. I think there's some fun parts of this. Definitely. Let's start there. First of all, uh, the budget for this movie was $4 million, which of the movies we've done, it's the lowest budget of anything that's been made in the last 30 years. Wow. Even lower than those straight-to-video bring-it-ons. This took less money to make. Amazing. And so far, it has grossed over $18 million, Oh. Which is really good for a movie like this. So it was profitable, showing that there is a market for that sort of thing. And yeah. I think that there is kind of a resurgence of this type of movie. And that A24 production house is a, is a big part of it. Right. You were talking about them in the prequel, or the pre-episode. Yeah. Um, about how there's some places that will make those weird little movies that big places won't actually look at and this when it opened was only on eight theaters it opened up on. eight theaters yeah so it's a very small one we did get it in edmonton for a little while but it's not going to be a very long run oh, okay so when you saw this movie on screen even in the trailer what's the first thing that jumps out on you how it looks old timey for sure it looks like something that would have been made at the beginning of film and that is incredibly astute because it's exactly that they went so far into making it look of the time that they use these Bosch and Lam Baltar lenses which were from 1905 to the 1930s and they're great portrait lenses but they don't work on any sort of modern camera so they had to like get everything retrofitted so they could use period uh. gear 
And I love the look of this movie. It's very cool to look at. I feel like every shot looks like it could be a still photo from from the 1900s. Mm-hmm. And they use the uh, the Kodak Double X film, which all you nerds out there will be like, oh yeah, I could tell. Uh, that was created in the late 50s and has been untouched since. Wow. So it's a, uh, this will be only for a very select portion of our audience, but... <laughs> It has uh, like far fewer stops of latitude, so it's about like four stops for modern films or closer to six. And it's an ISO of 80, meaning it's not sensitive film. So if any shot where it looks like there's just a lamp lighting it, mm-hmm. that's not a lamp lighting it. They had to bring in giant lights to light for this film. Oh. Because this film is not sensitive to light, not even close to what we have today. Not even close to your cell phone or your pocket camera or anything like that. So they were using huge lights and trying to get this look just right. Hmm. And that type of film is only sensitive to blues and greens. So that's why your skies look a certain way. And it's very much of uh, of a certain time. So it kind of looks like M in those Bergman movies. But we don't need to get into that. Although this movie is kind of like a mix of Persona... And Through the Glass Darkly and The Shining. That's my take on it. Oh, okay. So (laughs) you've seen The Shining. I've seen The Shining. And there's a lot I think you can take away that's really similar to The Shining. Just on its base that there's people in isolation that go crazy and then eventually murder someone with an axe. Yeah, that... I don't like the parallel of us being stuck at home all the time now. (laughs) Luckily, we have beer delivery, so we don't need to resort to drinking kerosene and honey. The other thing that's probably really apparent is the the boxy shape of the picture. That was really interesting to adjust to because I kept getting distracted by the outside of... Because we have, like, a modern TV. It's, like, big and... It's like a widescreen. And so it was really weird to, because I kept looking for things in the sidebars that were created by this like weird aspect. And uh, I, I kind of got a little distracted a couple times just from watching that. Because mm. I'd be like, oh, what's going on over here? And I'd be like, nothing, because this is it's only, just black. It's just black. But I kept getting distracted by the black bars on the side. Uh-huh. So this is even more square than older TVs mm-hmm. because they're at a 1.3 to 1 ratio. This is a 1.19 ratio, which is a very specific one that was used in from like 1926 to 1932. At the time, why they used to have this is because that's when they started introducing sound into movies. Right. And they didn't know like, well, where do we put the sound? It needs to be synchronized with the film. So they had the 1.3 film. But they used a strip along the side of it to encode the sound into. So that's what made it even more more boxed oh. in like that. So there's not many movies that did this. Like Sunrise had it. Maybe M had it as well. But it's called the movie tone aspect ratio. Hmm. Yeah, it was definitely interesting to adjust to it. Which about halfway through, I think I was pretty adjusted. Um, we paused at one point to have a little snack break. And uh, I definitely felt like it was easier to get back into it the second time because I think by then I had kind of adjusted to the fact that there were two big black bars on the side and that it wasn't going to fill the whole screen. Do you feel like that added anything other than just making it of the time? Not really. 
Because I think it adds to the uh, certain claustrophobia of the uh, movie. Maybe, yeah. Because you think you have a lighthouse and then you just have this vast expanse of ocean. So you, a movie like that, I would expect these wide vistas, these beautiful shots of waves crashing on rocks and all this open space. But the mood that Eggers is trying to evoke is the opposite of that. So I think having this almost square ratio makes everything much more penned in and claustrophobic, even though there's all this wide space. I feel like these characters are trapped in this tiny space together. Right. And I'm not sure if the shots actually mimic this, but it seems to go more and more into that as the film goes on. Everything feels tighter and tighter, but maybe that's just the quality of the of the story. And there's a lot more close-ups in this than in a lot of movies. It was a very in-your-face and like kind of really close shots. And that close-up wouldn't seem nearly as close if you had all of that space on either side of the person, yeah. right? Now the person's face is filling like the the entire screen and it kind of makes you feel just how the other person would. Mm-hmm. Like when you have Willem Dafoe yelling right into the camera, you kind of get what the Robert Pattinson character is going through then too as well. Absolutely. it does. It's a lot more like up close and personal and it does make you feel claustrophobic is a good word for it. You can talk about all these technical things and how they use like old journals from the 1890s to make it period accurate. Even the doorknobs are of the time. Everything is exactly right. <laughs> And you're like, yeah, that's cool, but but why? And I feel like this does go further than that. First of all, like if you had something that was out of place, I would feel like it would kind of take you out of it a little bit. And this never has that because they put so much attention to detail. Did the speech take you out of it? Maybe a little bit. Um, I know, like I said, I was kind of adjusting to the the aspect ratio of the movie. Hearing them talk, I was also um, kind of finding myself having to get used to their crazy accents mm-hmm. and how, like, their shortening of words or, like, their, like, pronunciation of letters that weren't even there. <laughs> and it was just, it, it was definitely hard to get used to, but I also found the uh, subtitles very distracting, which is why I asked you to turn them off. It's a really pretty movie, I think. So the subtitles were yeah, very annoying. I, I like, I knew that watching them, like all of the things on the screen and everything was going to be really important to understanding it. Mm-hmm. So I felt like me reading subtitles was going to be taking away from me seeing all the little things that were happening. Outside of it being black and white, which you don't care for, did you like the movie visually? Yeah, I thought it was interesting. And I definitely picked up on some of the things of um, like having those close shots, having them be kind of unsteady when they were kind of drunk, which was most of the movie. But um, And also there were some scenes uh, where you could tell that Robert Pattinson was almost like scared of heights. Like, he'd be right on the edge of the rock, and the way that the camera, like, either zoomed in and out, or the camera, like, kind of bobbed and weaved, you really felt like you were also having, um, what's it called? Vertigo? Vertigo, yeah. Which is employed very nicely in the movie Vertigo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So you kind of have that little feeling, like, even if you don't, like, have extreme vertigo, everyone kind of feels like, oh, I'm up really high all of a sudden. And the with the constant motion below of the waves, you really get that feeling of, like, if you fall in, you're going to die. Yeah, I liked that, although they used all those period lenses in film, 
the camera movement is definitely very modern because at the time you couldn't have a moving camera. That just wasn't something that they did at the time. Employing those new fluid camera movements, especially when it's going up and down the lighthouse, I think it was kind of taking the best of both worlds or maybe not the best of both worlds, but what would suit this story best yeah. from both. Yeah, so definitely looking at it, um, the way that they filmed it helped kind of reinforce some of the things that you don't get through the dialogue. I feel like lots of movies that I'm used to watching, you get a lot of the backstory and the setting and the feeling from dialogue. And this definitely didn't give you that. And that ability to kind of get some of the like how unsteady the ocean is and how high up they are and all of that stuff you don't get from dialogue but you get it from how they film the movie yeah i agree with half of that i think i might disagree with the dialogue not getting it across i know it's very stylized or period however you want to talk about it but i think the dialogue is actually very good it's, yeah, over the top and bombastic in a lot of places, especially from Willem Dafoe's Thomas. I think we should start calling them Thomas and Winslow, because there's a few different things you could call both of them. Yes. Because Winslow turns out he's Thomas as well. Yeah. But for the sake of it, we'll call Willem Dafoe Thomas and Robert Pattons and Winslow. Yes. Thomas has these like big grand speeches, which I just love so much. And I feel like if you weren't doing all of this period language if they were just talking like how we talk mm -hmm. or his, even with just like british accents or something yeah his proclamations would sound silly yeah and they have like a certain weight to them when he is calling upon the gods of the sea you're like yeah he can he is delivering that kind of performance where you kind of believe all of that could happen mm -hmm. so talking about that what are some of your favorite scenes or moments or things that you really liked in this one when the old man is knitting, that was, like, kind of a fun moment. <laughs> I just have to say, I'm reading through my notes that I wrote, and my final note is, I don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> that was one thing. We don't talk about the movies right after we watch them because no. we want to do it on the podcast. Yeah. But there were two little things we talked about. Um, one, as we were falling asleep that night, you just kind of said, like, what even was that movie? <laughs> yeah, that's that's yeah, it's a very me thing to say. And the other thing was I kind of sequester myself for a couple of hours and write a bunch of notes and I kind of get lost in my own head and like really start feeling the movie and you walked in to ask me something and I just said time's a flat circle, man. And then you just went of course it is. <laughs> and walked out. Walked out. And so, like, yeah. And I think you might have said, can't wait to talk about it. Very sarcastically. Excited to podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know that I can kind of pinpoint some of my favorite points. But maybe if you say some of your favorite points, I will be able to kind of separate them out. So one of my favorite moments of the film is probably most people's favorite moment. It's when Willem Dafoe has this long speech. It's a curse. He's cursing Winslow. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about all, invoking all the gods and cursing him to hell. And the delivery of that is, it's just amazing. And it goes on for about a minute and 30 seconds. 
And Defoe never blinks once. Really? It's one shot and his eyes are so wide. And the light must be incredibly bright because it's not just a lamp. It's probably a giant floodlight. It's shining right at him from below. Um, They're utilizing the height so he's kind of towering above you. And it's just amazing that you get lost in it. And sometimes I even laugh at that scene because it's just so over the top. And it's not like, oh, I'm laughing because it's silly. It's just amazing to behold and that's kind of the reaction i give sometimes and then when it all ends he goes but you like my food right <laughs> and Wins is like yeah okay fine i, I like the, the lobster was good because he's doing all this because he insulted his cooking yeah and he just invokes hell because he insulted his cooking i really liked that I like the bit when they start going real crazy and they drink the kerosene. Yeah. And you get that shot pulling up from directly above them and they're both just, just screaming like madmen as they drink this kerosene because they are going quite mad. The other scene that was really great is when Winslow is burying Thomas. He throws him into the dirt after oh, making yeah. him bark like a dog, throws him to the dirt and just starts burying him while Thomas keeps talking. And he's just getting the dirt in his mouth, but he keeps talking, and you can see that his his mouth's getting so dry because it's getting full of dirt, Mm -hmm. and he just buries him alive while he is talking. And that was... That was amazing. That must have been the worst thing ever to shoot. Oh, I bet. Mouthfuls of dirt. I was buried alive in a movie once, but I had, like, a thing covering my face, so I didn't have, you know... Dirt in your mouth. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't have to talk while doing it. I also really liked the sound design of this movie, I know sound design Oscars only go to the biggest movies out there, but I think movies like this are really overlooked. I loved how you get constant monotonous things like the waves, the machinery, it's all layered up. Mm -hmm. And then you get the lighthouse blasts. Sometimes the lighthouse blasts start melding with the music and they almost become one and it's hard to differentiate where the motion of the music stops and where the actual diegetic sound of their world begins because it all just kind of goes together kind of suggesting that this whole world is a part of their own emotions or minds or whatever it is yeah the background noise like i don't think i could pinpoint any time when i heard the music but it definitely sets the scene because the way it's filmed, it feels like you're in the room with them, and it definitely sets the scene and the tone of whatever is happening at the time. Did you find the music not terribly overbearing? Yeah. So the first time I watched it, I was like, did it even have music? All I could remember is the foghorn, the machinery, yeah, and the waves. Yeah, that's all I registered. So this time I listened to it thinking about the music. It's so big. It's so over the top and in your face that I don't know how it doesn't stand out more. Because I was exactly like you. I couldn't even remember it at all. And this time when I was looking for it, it's, it's huge. It's way more than a score that you'd get in most movies. It's loud and abrupt and beautiful, I think, but it's it's a very big part and somehow still melts into the background. It's very strange. Yeah. Because I don't remember any music, but I appreciated everything um, happening in the background, like the noise and the foghorn and the, the constant ocean. Because that's not a quiet place. No, like you think and it's of not a, a quiet movie. You think of a lighthouse as like really isolated, like old man sitting in a lighthouse by himself in the silence and everything. But there is no silence. There's rocks and ocean kind of colliding. There's seagulls. There's... Um, wind 
because lighthouses tend to be out on their own. There's nothing to break the wind. The foghorn blast, like, it's not a quiet place, and there's no, like, solitude. (laughs) No, and that's kind of the uh, contradiction of this movie, Mm -hmm. that there's all this space, yet it's still really claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. It should be the most peaceful place, but you're constantly bombarded by the the noise. The noise, yeah. uh, Yeah, there's a lot of contradiction in it that way. Yeah. How did you feel about the isolation of these two people together being, that's kind of what we're going through? (laughs) I definitely enjoyed seeing them and how they kind of worked out their own schedules. So, like, one would sleep at one time and the other would sleep at another time. And I understand that's, like, part of running a lighthouse. Like, someone has to be up all night to make sure the light doesn't go out and that there's no, like, problems. Uh, But it was interesting to see how they kind of worked themselves into schedules and how uh kind of seamless there was no discussion there wasn't a lot of talking in this movie like there was no discussion like oh i'm gonna go do this now and i'm gonna go do this now and oh like you're gonna go do that okay good night like it it just didn't really seem like that and it was kind of neat to see how they both took time for themselves and like alone time and that kind of thing do you see anything of our lives being mirrored in this yeah (laughs) Yeah, you know, when you go and pull in the lobster chop from the balcony and and, um, put on your raincoat to go change the kerosene lamp. It's true. (laughs) No, I think that um, we're both, at the beginning, we were having trouble kind of figuring out how to be in the same house 24 hours a day, which is not something that we do normally. And I think that we've kind of relaxed into a good schedule. Mm-hmm. One thing that I really understood was there are a lot of moments in this movie where maybe Thomas is gaslighting Winslow and making him think like, oh, you're crazy. That's not the case. Or maybe it's actually true. And there's a part where he says, like, how long have we been here? Two days? Four weeks? Four months? And Winslow doesn't have an answer. He's like, no, that was just yesterday, right? And he's not sure. And the other day I asked you, like, what the date was and you're like uh the 28th and i said of which month because <laughs> yeah. i don't know what's going on the only reason i know the dates and stuff is because of work yeah you I'm, work on calendars i'm stuff still working stuff yeah i'm doing calendars i'm like constantly looking at the date well let's talk a little bit about our two characters and their battle what do you see as like kind of the main point of contention between them there's definitely, like, a struggle for power. Mm-hmm. Like, Thomas is very much, like, domineering and very, like, go do your chores. You're behind. Why aren't you doing your chores? And I'm sure he works when we can't see him, but it does seem very much like things could be easier if they had some kind of, like, relationship where they could kind of understand tasks and talk about it and not all Thomas being like, go do that, go do that, go do that. It doesn't seem like it seems very um, unbalanced, their relationship. Yeah, there's definitely a struggle for power. And I felt like that was mostly rooted in their in their ideas of masculinity. I feel like it's a real masculine battle. Like when uh, Thomas is assigning him tasks, he assigns him the, the menial tasks. Winslow says, I'm not your housewife or slave. Meaning that to him, housewife and slave are kind of on the same level. Yeah. And both like equally offensive in his mind. 
and he wants to uh, to not be associated with what he kind of deems as feminine things, right? Right. Meanwhile, Thomas says that he's in charge of the light, which is kind of the uh, the most prestigious part. He also, at one point, I believe, says he's wed to the light. Mm-hmm. Like, the light is almost the only feminine thing, and he has ownership of it, and he's trying to stop Winslow from being anywhere near it. Well, yeah, because he locks himself in and out of the light area. Yeah. Also, he maybe has sex with the light at one point. Yeah, that was gross. There's at least something sexual between Thomas and the light. So that's another kind of thing of that. This is something that they both want sexually. And Thomas is the one who's taking control because he's Mm -hmm. kind of trying to assert his masculine dominance over over Winslow. Mm -hmm. He also does things like he calls him pretty... I think he might have says, like, his eyes are as pretty as a girl or something like that. (laughs) Yeah, it's definitely a weird relationship. And I think that I understand that, like, showing certain things make it, like, gritty. But I don't think we needed to see uh, Thomas's man juice. (laughs) Don't see. (laughs) You struggled. And then the best word you came up with was man juice. Just say, like, semen's less gross than man juice. His semen coming through the grate? Yeah. Like, oh, that was was too much for me. That was a point. That was something that I made note of. And I was like, did we have to see that? That Mm -hmm. was not necessary. And we also see Winslow masturbating. Mm-hmm. It's almost like there's like a battle of shows of sexual display mm-hmm. to like to see who's who's the more dominant. And then like, of course, the lighthouse is super phallic. They're always trying to show their power through levels when they're sitting and Thomas has to make a point. He stands and towers over him. And the only time they're really equal is when they're drinking. Alcohol's yeah, like and they're like equalizer. friends. <laughs> yeah, I love those moments. Those are really fun. I um found it annoying not annoying annoying is not the right word but um thomas would be mean to him all day and then expect winslow to be like his best friend at dinner mm-hmm. and be like talk to me let's talk let's joke and like i i was like if somebody treated me like that all day i don't think that having a drink with them would make me want to like joke around you say that but then also if this is the only contact you have maybe you'd be like yeah okay i i'm in for like if this makes this next two hours go by, great, I'm into it. Okay. And then Winslow also tries to, like, resist introspection. He's this character who has this past, but refuses to deal with it. So that's another, like, if we want to, however you want to talk it, if you want to use, like, the buzzwords of toxic masculinity, they're both definitely heavy into that. Because (laughs) Winslow refuses to, to see the problems within himself. But Thomas is willing to call out every little thing he does. And there's a definite fear of male sexuality between both of them. Like, there's that one moment where they almost kiss. I thought they were going to kiss. Did you? Yes. Because they're clearly going crazy. (laughs) Yeah. So they almost kiss. But because these are these two characters who are caught in this big masculine battle... Their only other option when they don't kiss is they start fighting Uh right away. They get real close, then push each other off and start punching each other. That is a very, like, toxic masculinity. Like, oh my god, we almost, like, did this What are you, gay? Better proof that I'm a man. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And that's exactly what they do, right? And then you could go as far if you, like, really start start stretching that Thomas's sexuality was all wrapped up with the lighthouse. And when 
Winslow finally reaches it, he just can't take it. So mm-hmm. it's like this symbol of this male sexuality, and they're just not able to deal with it because these these men are just not set up that way. Yeah, because they're dicks. Also, it's the early nineteen. Or when was this set? 1890s? 1890s. So it's like the late 1800s. Uh, that's just kind of where sexuality was <laughs> at that point. There definitely wasn't, they weren't going to have like tolerance or big long discussions or anything about like anything other than a man marries a woman and she makes the home and he goes to work. Well, we're saying off the top that it's definitely open to interpretation do you have any kind of theories of what you think things mean? I don't know. I, maybe I took this movie too literally. That's fine. There's no, like, <laughs> too much of one thing. Yeah. I, I definitely just think that it's it's, like, an accurate depiction of what would probably happen if two very different personalities were locked in a lighthouse together. And I think that um, they they showed a lot of the true-to-life stuff, like the farts and the masturbation and the, like, falling into roles like, you know, being a housewife or being the one who cooks. And I'm sure that Winslow didn't cook any meals because that that was what Thomas did. That was, that was his job, and he was the person who cooked on the meals. So I think it was interesting to see them fall into those roles, but I don't think I have any, like, meaning theories or, like, what it, what it all means. No, and that's very fair. I don't want to give the impression that if you're watching a movie that's kind of considered, like, an artsy movie, that you have to go, like, oh, this is a scene from the Bible where if that's what you take away... That's just as legitimate as anything else. Of course, I like to uh, to theorize and look into the, the symbols a lot you because do. that's kind of like my thing. Yeah. And that's great, too. It's what you take away from a movie like that. So if you're a big fan of How Did This Get Made, you always look at everything and go like, is this a Jacob's Ladder situation here? <laughs> Meaning that maybe someone is dying and a whole section or all of the movie is just something that's playing out in their mind in the moments before they right. die. So at the beginning of the movie, things are normal. Like they're kind of odd characters, but nothing's really crazy. Yeah. It's not until after Winslow falls from the lighthouse, we see things go black and then they lighten up again. And he, he hasn't even been helped by Thomas at all. No. He just kind of wakes up on his own. What if at that point, he died, and the rest is all in his mind, or is perhaps a sort of purgatory. This whole movie seems like a bit of a purgatory. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so maybe in this way, when in this kind of purgatory scenario, Thomas is like the guardian of heaven, maybe a, a St. Peter type. The light is heaven, and Winslow is always trying to get there, but Thomas is forcing him to toil, testing him to see if he's worthy of it. And because of the things he does, because maybe like the, the seagull is something like the serpent who's trying to attempt him, and he does succumb and is wrathful because of all of these things, and the murder of Thomas, when he tries to reach heaven on his own, he's rejected because he's failed all the tests, mm. because he has sinned. We definitely watch movies differently. Although, like, I didn't think that during it. <laughs> it's when I go and write my notes for an hour that, like, these things kind of come. Okay. Or perhaps this whole movie, they're both in purgatory, and 
the light is the judge and the god, and Winslow is rejected at the end for his misdeeds. Because there is a lot in the Bible of re referring to God being light, and then there's like, what's it called? The Holy of Holies? Like that one section of the tabernacle that's the most sacred and right. reserved for only certain people. Not yeah. everyone can go in there. In fact, there's a veil that that separates it because like the true essence of God is too much for a normal person and only the high priest can go into that area. In this case, maybe Thomas is that character and Winslow is just some regular person. So he can't, he can't behold, he can't understand what he sees when it eventually happens, when he sees the true nature of God. It's like an Ark of the Covenant sort of thing from Indiana Jones. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. The only thing that I did say while we were watching it is at the end of the movie, I said, who is that god that gets his liver eaten for eternity? And then I looked that up, and it turns out that I thought I was really clever of seeing some sort of like symbol, but the director is straight out said, like, oh yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> oh, when you think you're being clever. But let's get into the Greek mythology part of this movie. Okay. So there's Proteus and Prometheus. So Proteus is an earthly prophetic sea god. He's the god of bodies of water, and Homer referred to him as the old man of the sea. He's the keeper of knowledge. He's a friend and master to sea beasts, and he knows everything about this, but he won't share this knowledge with many other people. Hmm. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> so that's just Thomas. Also, Proteus is seen as a shapeshifter, oh. which when we see him up by the light, there's tentacles up there too, oh. which there's not much explanation for. I thought originally that maybe this is something to do with the light, but maybe that's Thomas. Maybe Thomas has that power because he's a shapeshifter. He's Proteus. Also, when Thomas and Winslow are fighting a tentacle wraps around Winslow's neck. Yeah. So it would make sense that Thomas is, is kind of a shapeshifter. Maybe not literally, but that idea. That's, yeah, that's a good theory. Uh, Prometheus, on the other hand, was the trickster titan. So the most famous thing about Prometheus is he stole the fire from the gods, and that's what sparked intelligent life in humanity. So in this case, the fire is the light, and Winslow is going up there to, to steal it. But Zeus, upon finding out what Prometheus did, he orders Prometheus to be chained to a rock for eternity, where an eagle would arrive every day and pick out his organs, only to have them grow back, and this cycle will just continue. So he always has that happening. Just every day, his organs are eaten by a bird. Wow. And if you remember the last shot of this movie, it is Winslow laid out on the rocks, with birds eating his eyes and organs. Yes, yes. So that's a very obvious. Yeah, that was the only one that I picked out like right at the time. I was <laughs> like, hey, I've seen that painting. And it is a specific painting that okay. it's referencing to. So in this scenario, Winslow defies the god being uh, Proteus or Thomas. And he climbs Mount Olympus, which is the lighthouse, and steals the forbidden fire or light and gets his... Uh, Organs eaten for eternity because of it. Gross. And annoying. Yes. And I think one of the most interesting parts is that this cycle keeps on going. So every day his organs grow back only to have them pecked out again. And I feel like there is a lot of uh, a lot of repetition 
or the idea that time is cyclical in this movie too. And this is where we get into the indie being indie part, because I always talk about one of my favorite sayings is like, time's a flat circle, man, when we talk about movies. And I think that is legitimate here. I think so. Oh, you just got so excited. Yeah, go on. Tell <laughs> your me Your eyebrows you went so. up and your eyes went really high. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think that you see that in um, like how monotonous their lives would be being on that lighthouse uh, like for what's supposed to be four weeks. I think your day to day would be very similar and you're just kind of doing your job until you get to have like fun drinking time. And I think you're going to bad knowing that, yeah, I'm going to get up and do this all over again tomorrow and there's going to be no break in that. And I think that's why it's like a circle. And and if I may, I'd like to take it a characteristic indie step further. Because the other thing I love talking about, like when we're talking about being John Malkovich, is the the fluidity of identity. Mm -hmm. Like knowing where one person begins and the other ends. And I think that really gets wrapped up in the idea of time being fluid in this movie. So follow with me here. Mm -hmm. I'm coming. Okay. So... (laughs) Either time is a flat circle, or perhaps this is the story of one man going insane and talking to himself and filtering this through all the stories that he has heard in his life, all of these sea legends. So maybe there aren't two people here. Maybe there is just one. No. Maybe it is just one person who was... A young man like Winslow, who came in naive, trying to escape something, and has been forgotten about. He's been lost. They never came to pick him up. It hasn't been four weeks or four months. It's been years. And the person he's become is Thomas. And Thomas is reliving this all at the same time. He's been there for so long, his past is the same as his present. There's no distinct lines. So when he's chastising Winslow, he's chastising himself for his own mistakes because it's just one man being being crazy and living in his own mind. Yeah. Or perhaps it's more like there are two separate entities, but they are also the same person. This is time repeating itself. Because it's really easy to mix these two characters up because... Both of them are lying about who they are when they introduce themselves to mm-hmm. each other. Thomas was lying about what happened to his leg. He clearly doesn't have this big history of being a, a really impressive sailor. Winslow is lying about everything as well. Um, his name is actually Thomas. Yeah. And it could be any name in the world. But, but to choose same. that it's the same name, they're both lying about it. They're both lying about their past. Both of them have had someone working with them die under very mysterious circumstances. Yeah. So you're saying that they are the same. It might just be the same person. Yeah. Whether it's all in the elder Thomas's mind or whether they are both two physical people, but a representation of time being being a loop. Because their biggest difference is their age and their experience. But they're really similar in a lot of ways. I think it just talks about how identity is fluid because both of these people seem the same. And maybe you could go as far as to say that it is, in fact, time repeating itself. Hmm. This is some this is some stuff. 
That's heavy. <laughs> because also we never get the true story of how the elder Thomas broke or lost his leg. Yeah. But we do see the younger Thomas fall from the lighthouse and break his leg. Maybe that's what he did. There's also sequences like when the older Thomas says to Winslow, like, you attacked me with the axe. Well, clearly we saw Thomas attack Winslow with the axe. Yes. So you could say like, oh, yeah, that's just Thomas gaslighting Winslow, saying like, no, you're the crazy one. Or maybe there's no difference because it's the same person, right? Maybe you did attack me with the axe, meaning there's just the one person. Yeah. Maybe there's no difference between the you and me. Well, now I'm going a little crazy and thinking, what if we take it a little step further? Oh, no. I don't think this is true. But maybe. So this all started because there is a dead gull in the water. That's where this kind of the insanity starts. And we have the idea that the dead gull or gulls in general are the spirits of seamen. So maybe the spirit in that gull the gull that he later kills is him. Mm. So here, the gull is him from the future, if you want to look at it that way. But again, time's a flat circle. Yes. The gull is Winslow trying to warn him about his past mistakes. Because at the end, we see Winslow, his eyes got picked out, one of them. Yeah. And this gull only has one eye. Yeah. And he shows up all the time. Yeah. Maybe it's trying to warn him about, like, no, I know where this goes. I'm your ghost. Don't fall into the same trap. And that's just kind of like three levels now of this of this same character. Whoa. That's, uh, that's quite the theory you've got there. Now I'm just getting lost in it. But probably the gull is more the spirit of the man that Winslow let die. Mm-hmm. Because we get that one hallucination where he pulls the head up in the lobster basket and it's missing one eye. Yeah. Just like the gull is. Or maybe it's the person that Thomas let die. His old wiki? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that's the same person because they both let the same person die because they're both the same person. True. Whoa, man. Whoa, man. So I think my understanding of this movie is illustrated by my notes that I text. I feel like I should just read you my notes. Please. Um, So my first note is long shots. Mm -hmm. Lots of standing around. Yeah, there was some of that. He's a dick all day and then expects him to talk to him over dinner. (laughs) Yep. But that, very legitimate point, but I think that is reality. I think people are like that. I think there's relationships that are like that. Yeah. Um, Dog? He calls him dog? Oh, yeah, because that's, like, the biggest insult. Yeah. And then that goes into that part later when he's trying to emasculate him as much as possible. When Winslow gains the power, he makes Thomas walk around like a dog and bark, and he has him on a leash. Yes. That's, yeah, he's just taking everything a step further. And I also really like that scene. <laughs> um, He just fell, and the old guy didn't do anything? Yeah, because he fell on his own. The old guy was him. Yeah. Uh... The old man knits. Yeah. Why was it necessary to see the seaman? Uh, he killed a seagull and the wind changed? Yes, because it's bad luck to yeah. kill a seabird. They lose their minds. They do. Agreed. They're both Thomas. Oh, you wrote that too. Oh, you meant literally. Yeah. But did you think of like, well, maybe they are both? No, okay. no, they're just both named Thomas. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a dog now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, he was a dog then. I don't even know. <laughs> I feel as much rambling as I did, as much linking to different scholarly texts and Bibles and Greek mythology that I did, your 30 seconds there sums up this movie better than I could have. That end. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. Um, yeah, I I like all of your theories and everything that go into them. I also watched it, and I think I watched it very literally, and I don't think that I was looking for all of that, like, allegory and, like, backstory and, oh, what if this and what if that. I was just, like, two guys locked in a lighthouse. Some weird shit happens. And that's just as legitimate. Yeah. So. Like I was trying to say at the beginning, I think movies like this let you decide what's important. If what's important is two dudes locked in a lighthouse and they go crazy, then that's fine. Because like you could say that this movie's about um, overreaching your station, as, as is suggested by those uh, mythological illusions. You could say it's about time being cyclical and identity being fluid. You could say it's a story of failed redemption or the dangers of isolation. It's all just as valuable because this movie doesn't give you hard answers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why movies like this are important. I'm not even sure I love this movie. <laughs> I love that this movie exists now and is getting attention. Because I often talk about like, oh, we don't get movies like this anymore. But I think there is a really good resurgence of this type of stuff in the last... 10 years and i'm i'm excited for it and i think this is almost a good time for it because we are living in this kind of remix culture mm -hmm. like um memes everyone loves memes but a meme is just as complicated as this yeah like if you can take a picture of kermit the frog and then that links like rupaul and a story your friend told you that's a bigger leap than me saying that this is about time being cyclical. Yeah. So I feel, I just wish that people gave the same attention to like deep Twitter memes as they do to movies like this, because I think they're playing on the same things. But for whatever reason, we think, oh, this is intellectual and pretentious while those things are accessible and populist. And I think that there doesn't need to be that kind of barrier. And maybe movies like this are getting more popular, or at least doing all right in the box mm -hmm. office. More people are going to see them and hate it or love it or just be confused by it. I think it's good to have these out there because not everything can be, here's the story, boy meets girl, they lose each other, they fall in love again at the end. And it's great to have that, but it can't all be that. No, that's very true. And I think if you have a generation of filmmakers or writers or actors who are informed by these more esoteric, ambiguous things, it's only going to help them, even if they're making what we consider a, a standard rom-com or action movie. If they have the film language of movies like this, it's only going to improve whatever they're doing in the end. And that's why I think The Lighthouse is something that everyone should watch. Okay. I'd say give it a chance. I'd say go in with an open mind and uh, make your own conclusions like after you watch it. Before we had our conversation, could you sum up your feelings on the movie? Not really. Okay. <laughs> Do you feel like you gained any sort of appreciation after talking about it? Yeah, I think so. I think that 
explanation of some of the things that maybe I missed, um, like the the Greek god who gets his innards eaten every day, like those kinds of things kind of made the story um, a little bit more powerful, I think. And uh, those are just things that I kind of didn't pick up on the first time we watched it. Yeah. Cool. I think this conversation has helped me understand this movie. I still am not a fan. That's fine. <laughs> That's fine. But I think... If nothing else, it's a good experience because the more variety you have in your art consumption, whatever it is, I think it's good if you listen to lots of types of music. I think it's good if you watch lots of kinds of movies and TV shows. It's only going to enhance it for you, even if you end up hating something. Because I know you don't like metal. You hate metal. But I think if you listen to it, maybe you'll appreciate the types of music you do like more, and you'll be able to hone in on why you like them. Fair. I think there's just something to gain from experiencing a great variety of things. Yeah, I agree. And that's where I end on The Lighthouse. Okay. Experience a variety of things. Give it a chance. Open-mindedness. Yeah, experience everything. Watch The Lighthouse. Go drink kerosene. Don't drink kerosene. Punch a clown. Eat its flesh. What's that like? I don't know. Nope. (laughs) Kate. Go skydiving. I'm pausing you. (laughs) Skydive into a lake full of pudding. Why not? Where where is this lake full of pudding? I don't know. I'd totally go there. (laughs) Me too. Pud Lake. Pud Lake. Maybe I am getting weird during isolation. I think you are. So we'll see you next week when we talk about more streaming picks and give you some new things to watch because I'm sure we're all at the end of our binge-watching wish lists and are probably in need of some new options. Um, And I will introduce our next movie, which I'm very excited to have Indy watch. Me too. See you next week, everyone. Bye-bye.